Colossians chapter 1. Mike should be on. I just got a mic sign. Let me see. It is not muted. And it is on. <laughs> Always something, right? Hey, it's all right. We'll use this one until we get it figured out. How's that? Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. We uh, come to this text, and Paul is talking about suffering and how that contributes to the growth of the church. And when we think about suffering, we don't think of it in terms of something that's positive, do we? As a matter of fact, what we think on most occasions is, if I'm doing it right, if I'm serving God properly, then the way that I know that I'm in God's will is when everything goes according to plan and there is no suffering. Things are good. Wrong. Sometimes God's plan, and I might even add often, God's plan involves suffering. And it's the key to our growth, but it's also the key to the growth of those who are around us as they watch us deal with the suffering and then share with them in the midst of theirs. Today, we want to see the importance of growing together as the church of God. And as we come to this text, what we're going to see is this. When we suffer, often we are suffering for Jesus and for his church. So let's look here at Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, and understand some points that Paul wants us to grasp about suffering's relationship to our personal growth and to the growth of those around us. When we come to the 24th verse, Paul begins to assure us that when we suffer, we are never suffering alone. Look at what he says in verse 24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. As we come to the first part of this 24th verse, we find that the word of God has an unusual response to suffering. Now, I don't know about you, but when I suffer, joy is not my default position. Often, when I suffer, it's the polar opposite. I don't look at it as something that's enjoyable, I look at it as something that I might endure, but certainly not something that I can or should rejoice in if I look at it from a human standpoint. But in the word of God, what Paul is saying in this text is, I view the suffering that I'm enduring in this moment as an occasion for rejoicing. Now, in order to understand this text, we have to think about what he was going through. As Paul writes to the Colossians, he's under house arrest. He is chained to a guard. He is imprisoned. 
The Apostle Paul didn't know where this would lead. He did know that his opportunity for ministry was diminished because as a prisoner, he didn't have the freedom to go and share the gospel. But yet, look at what God did through Paul's imprisonment. Many of our New Testament epistles, letters from the Apostle Paul that we now call our Bible, written while Paul was imprisoned. God had a purpose that was being fulfilled. And to me, that is the key to rejoicing in our suffering. God has a purpose for our suffering. And when we recognize that, we have the occasion for joy. Why? Because joy is really taking delight in the knowledge that God's purpose and ultimate good is coming from what I experience. That's what rejoicing is. Taking that perspective. It doesn't mean that we're somehow spiritual masochists who look at the suffering and say, oh boy, this is fun. That's not the idea. It's us looking at the suffering and saying, look, if I go through this temporary trial, it is for the purpose of God. And he's going to see to good coming out of this. Not my definition of good, but true good. Because God is good. So here is Paul rejoicing in the suffering. But notice something else. He says, I rejoice in what was suffered for you. We live in a me society. Let's face it. We're in a selfie world, right? Everything is about me. But when we look in this text, what a different perspective we find here from this servant of God. You see, this servant of God looked at his suffering as not something that was just applicable in his life for his own personal growth, but something that could be used in the lives of other people. You see, the suffering was for God. The suffering was for his personal growth. But the suffering was also for the church body. He thought about how what he was going through could be encouraging to other believers around him. Now, this to me is an important perspective for us as we think about suffering. Suffering pertains to not only my personal growth, but as people see me stand strong in the face of suffering, I am encouraging and emboldening the body of Christ to continue in their faith. And that's why it's so important that we come together as a church body so that we can do life together so that we can see the struggles and the difficulties that we have together and find a place where we can work on growing together as a result of that. Now, as we continue in that 24th verse, one of the most unusual statements that we find in the book of Colossians is made. And some have taken this passage and become very confused about it. And this is what it says. Paul says, I will fill up in my flesh 
what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now, when we read that, there are some people that scratch their head and immediately say, well, wait a minute. You're saying that there was something lacking in Christ's afflictions? And they're thinking in terms of the cross. Wrong application. Not what this text is saying at all. Jesus Christ accomplished everything that he needed to accomplish on the cross. There was no shortfall. Everything that was needed for your sin to be covered, for you to have a right relationship with God, perfectly covered in the cross, never lacking. But really what Paul is pointing our attention to is this. When Jesus Christ suffered on the cross, that wasn't the end of his suffering. And here's why. He is connected to us as believers. We are in him. When we suffer, he suffers. One of the perspectives that Paul had on his suffering was this. I am connected with Jesus Christ and I'm never alone. As I suffer, Christ suffers with me. Now, how do we know that? Think about Paul's conversion for a moment. When Paul was on the road to Damascus, he was persecuting the church in Acts chapter 9. He was on a mission to drag people from the church at Antioch into prison. So on this road, Christ appears to him, and he says this. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, Jesus had already been crucified, resurrected, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And yet, Paul was, or at that point Saul, was persecuting followers of Jesus. And yet, what does Jesus say? Why are you persecuting me? The idea that's communicated in both of these texts is this. When we suffer, we have one who was with us who understands our suffering. And he is with us all the way. And yes, he experiences suffering. And even today, as we see the persecuted church around the world, those brothers and sisters are not suffering alone. There is a continued suffering that will continue until the very end. And Jesus experiences that with his people. So Paul viewed his suffering as a part of all of the suffering that will go on for the followers of Jesus Christ. So he's a part of a company as well as being a part of Christ. And that's how we need to view our suffering as well. Now look at what else Paul says. 
this suffering that he was rejoicing in is for the sake of his body, which is the church. Listen, when we suffer, we're not alone because we have Christ in our life. But we're also not alone because we are a part of the body of Christ. Now, Paul could see how his suffering would contribute to the church of Jesus Christ because, again, as we pointed out earlier, he had written letters. He was able to send his disciples, those that he had poured his life into, to go and do ministry within the church. So his suffering meant the growth and the betterment of the church body. Thinking outside himself, he was thinking about the body of Christ. And you know, as I think about this text, this is a challenge to me. How often do I look at things individualistically? I'm only thinking about how something will affect me. The commitment and the sacrifice that the Apostle Paul was willing to invest in was there because he loved God, but he loved the church body. See, something we should understand is this. God passionately loves the church. We should too. There's an approach that we can take to interacting with other believers that's convenience-based. I'll do this because this is the easier thing for me to do. But that's not what drives a mature believer's decision. What should drive our decision is, how will this affect the body of Christ? Will this be something that God can use in others, not just in me. So Paul is sharing with the Colossians a value system of his connectedness with them and with other churches as believers that he had a part in, that he was invested in. But I think the application also applies to us on a local church level. We look at how what I do, what I say, how I conduct myself, how that will affect those around me. It's an important part of my consideration. Now the text goes on in verse 25. And when we come to 25, we find that the Apostle Paul had a clear understanding of precisely what he was to do in ministering to the church. And that was to serve by disclosing God's mystery, the church. Notice verse 25 says this, I have become its servant, it referring to church. So I have become the church's servant by the commission God gave to me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Paul had a unique understanding of what his ministry was. And you know, to me, this is key to our spiritual growth and to the growth of a church body. 
People coming to the place to understand that God has called me to this church. I am here not by accident, but by the will of God. And in God calling me to this place, he has given me a job to do. Something to engage in. Now for the Apostle Paul, that was to share apostolic teaching that's recorded here in the book of Colossians and in so many of the other books of the Bible that we have. But for others of us, there will be differing responsibilities that God has called us to, that the church sorely needs. The idea of discovering and implementing a vision that God has uniquely for you as a part of a church body should be part of our thinking. Thinking beyond ourselves and what we receive from church, we need to stop and think, what do I bring to the church? Why does God have me here? What are the things that I should share? So for Paul, becoming a servant directly commissioned by God he was given the responsibility of presenting the word of God in its fullness. And aren't you glad that Paul fulfilled that responsibility? As we see the word of God, as we see how God used this one man to write so much of our New Testament, we find one who was faithful. And lives were changed because he followed what God called him to do. I would submit to you that we can see the same when we discover and follow the path that God has for us. The 25th verse calls us to seek the fullness of doing what God calls us to do, the completeness of serving God in the area that he's called us into. I wonder how many of us have really thought about what would God have me do in my local church? How would he have me serve? What part can I play in the growth and the development of believers around me? Not just in my own personal growth, but in the growth of others. You see, it's beyond the responsibility of the pastor or the elders. It goes to us all. We all have that responsibility to invest in the lives of other believers. So really, we are to become servants, slaves of the body of Christ. Look at what else we find. As Paul was sharing this ministry of service, he was also revealing something that was vitally important. Verse 26 says this, the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know what he's talking about here? We take the idea of the gospel and of non-Jews becoming Christians for granted. 
We look at it and we say, well, of course that's the case. It's been that way for a couple thousand years where Gentiles become Christians. Understand in the first century that is not the case. This is new. And the idea of anyone but a Jew having a relationship with God through the Old Testament, that was a mystery. That was hidden. Now, hindsight's twenty twenty, and we can go back in the Old Testament and we can see some glimpses of where these promises are made. But it was hidden, which is what mystery means. But now, God changed that. And Paul, originally a very committed Jew, was transformed to where it became his passion to tell people he once hated, the Gentiles, that they could find a relationship with God through the crucified Jesus Christ. What a blessing and what a passion. We need to have that same passion for sharing the mystery of the gospel. See, to someone who hasn't found a personal relationship with God, sharing the truths of God's life-changing truth is a mystery to them. They don't understand it. This is radically new thinking to them. And God has called us all into that responsibility to share the gospel with those who have not heard. We have the responsibility of taking the truth of God to those around us and revealing it, just as Paul was doing with the church at Colossae and with the Philippian church. We need to be people who make that same kind of commitment, following the things of God passionately, sharing his truth to those who have not heard. We carry on that responsibility of sharing the mystery. And look at how this mystery is described. Verse 27. To them God has chosen to make known to the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have a lost world, a broken world that is bereft of hope. Don't hear much hope going on as I listen to what people are screaming and saying back and forth to one another nowadays, do we? There's a caustic hatred that simmers, and I'm not just talking about in our country, globally. One group against another. The only hope that they find is power and hatred. And that's short-lived. But God offers a far different hope. The hope that God offers is Christ in you. The transforming power of coming into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
That's the hope that we have to offer to those who so desperately need to hear this mystery. We need to pray about how we can bring that message, that mystery, to those around us. Final thoughts. We need to seek to present everyone mature in Christ. But Paul had a responsibility in sharing the gospel. But in verse 28, we find that there was also a responsibility to the church body that he worked toward. And so that goal of presenting everyone mature in Christ was what he had dedicated his ministry and his life to. And look at what we find in verse 28. We proclaim him. You know what the word proclaim literally translates? Our English Bibles have the word proclaim. It's an old term that we don't use much anymore, and it means to herald. Now, what is a herald? And by the way, it's H-E-R, not A-H-A-R. A herald is somebody who was like the town messenger. When there was an emergency, when there was a good announcement, when there was a disaster, the herald would walk through the streets and he would scream at the top of his lungs the news that everyone needed to hear. See, they didn't have radio, they didn't have texts, they didn't have any way of understanding what was being broadcast apart from a herald. Isn't that a beautiful picture of who we are and what we're to do? You and I are the heralds today. We're the voice of the gospel to God. Now, there are many mediums that we can do that in. You can share it in an email, or you can share it on Facebook. We can share it in the office lunchroom. We can share it at the family gathering. We can share it over the fence with a neighbor. But in each of those cases, we herald him. But look at what else. We admonish and teach everyone with wisdom to a particular goal so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. You know, one of the reasons that our church takes 50% of our service and dedicates it to teaching the word because that is the way we grow in our relationship with God. Sitting under the teaching of the word. Certainly not here to entertain you. We are here to teach you who God is and who you are because of who God is. We are here to learn the practical truths of God's word. And what that means is sometimes admonishing. To admonish means that we look at attitudes and actions that are out of step with God and we address them, not in a mean-spirited way, but in a way that gets us back on track because we love God 
and we love one another enough to do that. That's admonishing. But then teaching is presenting the truths of God in an orderly fashion so that as we go through the truth that God reveals in his word, we can see that these aren't just words that were written 2,000 years ago. These have practical applications and truths to our lives today. We often say at Oaklawn Bible Church, we don't want to touch on the word. We want to feature it. We want it to be an important primary part of our ministry because of what it does for our lives. So this is what God is doing here. He's doing it through Paul and the goal to present everyone mature in Christ. When you think about presenting people mature in Christ, it has to do with evangelism. It has to do with discipleship. It has to do with teaching and training. And that's our role as a church, to herald the truth of God. And then as people respond to the gospel, to see to their spiritual growth so that they can become mature. By the way, mature is a better translation of the word translated perfect in this text. Because this side of heaven, none of us are perfect. Present company definitely included. Now, strength for serving God. This is the last part of this text. As we seek to present everyone mature in Christ, how do we pull that off? How do I keep up with the responsibilities that I have in my home and at my work? And now, Pastor, you're talking about responsibilities at church. How, how do I fulfill all of these responsibilities? Well, number one, let me say this. Don't compartmentalize the spiritual should influence every aspect of your life, family, work, every aspect. But number two, look at what the scripture says in verse 29. To this end I labor. Now the word labor there means to toil to the point of exhaustion. So it says to this point I end, um, this end I, I labor, but then it says struggling with all, whose energy? His energy. His energy, referring to God. What God calls us to do, God equips us to do. And I would even say from this text, he energizes us to do. We should not look at our lives and say, the chief goal of my life is to feel good and comfortable. There's a place where we need to be willing to toil. And that's where we show that commitment to God and trust him for the energy to pull it off. In fact, look at what he says in that last phrase of the 29th verse. In speaking of the energy that God gives, he says, which so powerfully works in me. God's energy is powerful. And I would say to you, 
in my walk with God and in my service through more than 35 years of serving him, I have found God to be one who indeed powerfully works through us. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 talked about a thorn in the flesh. And he was asking God how he would get past this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. And Jesus' response was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So you know what Paul's response to that is? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Listen, growth takes stretching. You want to become stronger physically. When the muscles start to ache and the joints start to pound, usually after two sessions, maybe even one, you can look at it and say, you know, this is too painful. And get some Old Spice aftershave and you're good to go. But at any rate, <laughs> when it's too painful, now I've just lost you. <laughs> you don't quit. Why? Because if you're going to be stronger, you know that it's going to involve discomfort, some pain, some stress, and distress to your body. So you keep at it, and you find that you grow stronger. But spiritually, I would say to you that the same thing takes place. We grow painfully, but we don't rely on our own resources to just push through. There's the strength of God that sees us through and provides the strength that we need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the reminder that it is to us that we're in this together. That we have come to serve you, Lord, and to serve one another for the purpose that you have called us to. May we draw upon your strength and your resources and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.